0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. I'm hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zack. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July 27th. Today, a shaky start for the U.S. women's gymnastics team and the search for parents separated from their children at the U.S. border.
1: The shock at the Tokyo Olympics today it happened in women's gymnastics, where everyone tuned in to see by how much the U.S. women would beat the rest of the world.
0: Liz Clark is a sports reporter for The Post.
1: For the U.S., They were seeking their third consecutive gold team medal. And I don't think in anyone's mind, was there any doubt that the US would get gold? It was simply a matter of how crushing would their margin be. And that's largely because they were led by Simone Biles, by anyone's count, the greatest gymnast who's ever lived.
0: On Tuesday, Simone Biles withdrew from the women's gymnastics team final. It was an astonishing decision, and it was not because of an injury. After, the U.S. women's team came in second. The Russian Olympic Committee won gold. It was the first time since 2008 that the U.S. did not come in first in this event.
1: In the women's team final, each country competes on four different apparatus. For the U.S., the first apparatus was Vault, which is one of Simone's absolute best events. Each country had three athletes go, and Simone was the last to compete for the U.S., and she'd planned to perform one of three super difficult vaults she has in her repertoire. It's called the Aminar, and it involves a two and a half twist in the air. When she set off to do her Aminar, mid-flight, she pulled back. She downgraded the skill and did only one and a half rotations, which is a serious sign of trouble. You concede a lot of points when you do something less difficult. And she landed not solidly. She immediately left the mat and went to speak with the medical trainer for the U.S. team. And then after a brief conversation, she left the gym floor and it just cast the whole event into kind of a state of shock and disbelief, even as athletes had to keep proceeding.
0: And what was your reaction when you saw her landing when you saw that this vault had
1: not gone well for her? Well, it's just absolute shock. So many things stand out about Simone in the excellence of her gymnastics. Among them are consistency. You can count on Simone at every every event and her mental strength. I mean, pound for pound, I'd put it against any athlete in the world. She is just Fierce mentally, and this was not the Simone that we know, we expected to see. There was doubt, and and, and let me just say there was wisdom. I mean, there's such an element of physical danger in her skills that the only prudent thing to do if you are not feeling fierce mentally is to walk it back, to protect yourself physically. So a lot was going on in terms of decision-making and emotion for sure, in those that span of a few seconds. And
0: has she said anything publicly about what happened? How she's feeling now?
1: Yes, she had uh, made a few comments that she she withdrew at that point after just doing the one vault in the one apparatus, the first apparatus, because she didn't want to proceed. She didn't want to go further second guessing herself and she was second-guessing herself.
2: No injury, thankfully, and that's why I took a step back because I didn't want to do something silly out there and get injured, so I thought it was
1: better. And she and thought she it was better for her to step back job, and let her teammates, in whom she has great confidence, the other three women, finish the job. I
2: just felt like it would be a little bit better to take a backseat, uh, work on my mindfulness, and I knew that the girls would do an absolutely great job, and I didn't want to risk the team a medal for... Uh, kind of my screw-ups because they've worked way too hard for that. So I just decided that the, those girls need to go in and do the rest of the competition.
1: And then she also said what is so true. She said, this was very uncharacteristic of me. And she said, it sucks. <laughs> it sucks that it happened at this moment, you know, but it it does happen. And particularly given the year it has been, that's another sentence loaded with meaning for Simone she wasn't shocked
2: and it's been really stressful this olympic games i think just as a whole um not having an audience there are a lot of different variables going into it it's been a long week it's been a long olympic process it's been a long year um so just a lot of different variables and i think we're just a little bit too stressed out um but we should be out here having fun and sometimes that's not the case so
1: what happened after she pulled out So in the team final, each country puts three athletes up for each event. With Simone pulling out, that meant that some of her assignments had to go to a few of her teammates who were not expecting to perform these roles. In particular, Jordan Childs, who is 20, was making her Olympic debut and trains with Simone. Jordan was pressed into service on the balance beam and the uneven bars, which she was not planning to do. She did a super job. And then Simone's other teammates, Sunisa Lee and Grace McCallum, proceeded with their routines. There were some spectacular moments there, Sunisa Lee on uneven bars. And there were some stumbles, much as we had seen by all four gymnasts on, on Sunday. That No one was hitting on all cylinders. But nonetheless, so they did a really heroic job. But it wasn't enough to overtake a Russian team that had a few a few missteps on balance beam. The Russians weren't perfect, but all told, they, they mounted a better effort as they had on Sunday. They, they scored higher than the Americans in qualifying, which was the first shock, the first big surprise. And they proved it was no fluke. You know, they backed it up Tuesday impressively. How did the Russian men perform in gymnastics? They, you know, much like the women, they exceeded expectations. They won gold as the team. And I don't think uh, they were favored. I I believe Japan was favored. So they kind of set the tone, but the women were right with them starting Sunday.
0: And it's interesting to see these Russian athletes doing so well in this year's Olympics because Russia was banned from competing in the Tokyo Olympics two years ago in a big doping scandal. Can you remind us of what happened and how it is that now Russians who are competing in the Olympics
1: are doing so well? So the International organization that handles drug testing for the Olympics found evidence, convincing evidence of state-sponsored doping of Russian athletes across many, many sports. So it wasn't a matter of one athlete doing something appropriate. It just was a government orchestrated scheme To dope their athletes and cover it up. And so that obviously warrants sanctions. So the sanctions that they came up with was we will ban the country from competing. And then you move to what is the fairest way to treat athletes who weren't, Part of this, who maybe were too young, you know, we're, were not competing at that level at, at that time, or we have no evidence that they were doped with their knowledge or without their knowledge. So mm-hmm. I think anyone would say it's unfair to ban an entire nation's athletes if you were not part of something your government did wrong. So the solution that was reached is that a certain number of athletes from Russia could go ahead and compete, they would compete as the Russian Olympic Committee. So Hmm. if your viewers are looking and you see ROC, that is what that stands for. They are denied the honor of raising the Russian flag when they win medals on the podium. They are denied the honor of playing the Russian national anthem when you win gold. So it's... It's powerful in that way. That said, I believe it's 335 athletes from Russia are competing in these summer games, and they're doing exceptionally well. So it seems like there's kind of an irony here that this was supposed to
0: be an Olympics in which the honor for Russia as a country was going to be mediated because of these sanctions. And yet Russian athletes are dominating, at least
1: in these couple high-profile events. So the effort to smack the hand of the nation for the role that government played in doping its athletes, to me, is largely symbolic. Yes, you can deny their flag, you can deny their national anthem, you can make them compete as sort of generic, off-the-shelf, ROC amalgam that no one's really going to understand, but in their heart, every fiber of their being, they are Russian Olympians and they are going to come to win. So
0: then what happens next? Is Simone Biles out of the Olympics? And
1: if not, like, what kind of pressure is going to be on her going forward? So Simone arrived at the Olympics in Tokyo with a chance to win six medals. She still is in play for five medals. She qualified for the all around the individual all around that's the most prestigious honor that you can get as as an individual gymnast and she has she's the defending olympic champion from what we know now she is her games will continue she's not scheduled to compete again until thursday and then she qualified for the finals in all four apparatus so she will return as an individual representing simone biles for these opportunities if she feels mentally, emotionally, physically ready. And given the difficulty of her skills, it would not be advisable for her to continue if she's not back to that confidence. And how you lose that, how you get it back, how this happens in a 48-hour span, none of us knows. Just as none of us can imagine the weight that she has felt as the face of the games, the face of our country, the senior leader of, of the women's gymnastics team. And she has such a delightful, exuberant personality. It's easy to listen to her talk and think this is so effortless for her because she's so full of joy. And she makes the impossible look so easy. It's easy to suspend common sense and and not really realize the risk involved of the dismount she's doing on beam and the triple-double she's doing on floor and the vault that she wanted to debut here that would be named for her, the double pike Yurchenko. I mean, the peril of messing up is not just an ugly score. You know, it could be a spinal cord injury. You know, it could be a catastrophic injury. There's very much risk at play every time she competes against herself, which is the only metric she knows. Like I'm going to be better than I was yesterday, and it's a it's we can't imagine the toll that this takes and the strength it takes to keep getting up for this.
0: Liz Clark is a sports reporter for the Post. This story was produced by Rennie Svernovsky.
3: So last month I flew to Guatemala City and drove into the sort of western highlands of Guatemala.
0: Kevin Seif is the
3: Central America bureau chief for The Post. Honestly, it just felt like the end of the earth in rural Guatemala, like just one mountainous dirt road that led to another worse dirt road. I was there traveling with a man named Heriberto Pope, who is a human rights lawyer in northern Guatemala and begun working basically on a volunteer basis for an organization that is searching for separated parents who were deported under the Trump administration.
0: During the Trump administration, nearly 4,000 children were separated from their parents at the border. It was part of Trump's zero-tolerance
4: policy. The United States will not be a migrant camp, and it will not be a refugee-holding
0: facility. won't be. Kevin says that while reunification is ongoing, the U.S. government does not actually know where about 300 of these parents are. That is where people like Eriberto come in.
3: Okay. Como llamas? Eriberto, pop.
5: Mi trabajo consiste en buscar
3: Every couple of months, Eriberto gets an email from an organization that's based in New York. An email has. few names of parents who were separated from their children under the Trump administration beginning in 2017
5: and often it's a name the name of a village
3: maybe a phone number but no more than that and with that information, Ariberto basically gets on a rented motorcycle and drives deep into rural Guatemala, trying to find these missing parents. And the reason why this search is so important now is because the Biden administration...
1: Today, I'm going to sign a few executive orders. Um,
3: as soon as Biden took office, made a pledge to reunify the families that were separated and remain separated.
1: And uh, with the first action today, uh, we're going to work to undo the moral and national shame of the previous administration that literally, not figuratively, ripped children from the arms of their families, their mothers and fathers at the border, and with no plan, none whatsoever, to reunify the children who are still in custody and, uh, and their parents.
3: But the challenge kind of inherent in that promise is that we don't even know where more than 200 of these parents are today. And so, Eriberto, interestingly, and kind of surprisingly enough, is now at the center of this really important promise.
0: In February, President Biden vowed to bring families together. He created a reunification task force. And as of this month, about three dozen families have been reunited. But more than a thousand are still waiting. Kevin has been reporting on the efforts to bring those families back together. He spoke with producer Sabby Robinson.
4: Why did the U.S. ask someone like Ariberto to find these missing parents?
3: I think when when a lot of people heard about the Family Reunification Task Force, as it's being called in Washington, that's run out of the Department of Homeland Security, they imagined a sort of polished institution within the American government bureaucracy, that there would be a whole team of people who would be handling every aspect of family reunification. And while that task force does exist, and there are U.S. government employees working on aspects of reunification... Eriberto, who is absolutely not a government employee, is working on this really crucial part of the process. And the reason for that, or at least one of the reasons for that, is because the, the U.S. government believes that he is more trustworthy in these communities. That if you sent like an official from the State Department to knock on the door of a family that was separated three or four years ago, that family either won't answer the door or will not be open with the person. Whereas if you send someone like Geriberto who speaks Kekchi, the, the native language in the region, who's from the region, who understands the conditions on the ground, it's a better way to begin the process. And so that's that's one of the things the US government says, that you know, it it's relying on local people to do this because they're more trusted. And so while there may at some point be like a more systematic, institutionalized effort to locate families and reunify families. We're just not there yet. We're just not seeing that yet.
4: Hmm. Wow. And so what's Ariberto's process like for finding these parents? Like, how does he actually track them down?
3: So he gets the email and he starts kind of the way that any of us would, right? We're like, sometimes he's heard of the village and so he knows immediately where it is. And Sometimes he has to search for it on a map because some of these villages are so small and so remote that even someone who's from that region doesn't know exactly where they are. And so he, he kind of creates his own map of where these families are located. Like literally a hand-drawn map on notebook paper. And he'll put like a little star roughly where he thinks a family might be. He calls a friend who has a motorcycle. And they drive basically into the mountains of Guatemala. And from there, the search only gets more complicated. There might be a dirt road. There definitely are no addresses, right? So when he arrives in the community, he basically needs to just start asking, asking around, do you know this person? Sometimes people don't even want to respond to him because they don't know who he is. So even though he speaks the local language, even though he's he's an indigenous Guatemalan, he's still not from that place. And so there's still even then a lack of trust.
4: And while you were with him, did he manage to find any parents?
3: So when I was with him, he had a list of four parents that he was trying to find. Hmm. But in the first couple of cases, uh, the, the separated parent who'd been deported alone without their child wasn't there. Um, they were at work, and it was only the spouse that was there. Is this your house? Yes.
5: Hello?
3: Heriberto kind of, like, got an updated phone number, updated address.
5: Mm-hmm. And
3: checked them off the list. And the idea was he would pass that updated information on to lawyers in the United States. And then this interesting thing happened for, on the third family. He was about to get back on his motorcycle, and someone came up to him and was like, are you by chance looking for this person? And it was really bizarre, because the person that we were looking for actually was supposed to live in a totally different village. But it turned out that actually that person had moved to the place where we were, And so this guy kind of points us in a direction. And we just start walking up the hill and it's, you know, it's been raining, so it's really muddy. We look up sort of towards the top of the hill, and there's a landslide that's in progress. The land is not currently moving, but clearly it is encroaching on all these homes beneath. And Eriberto, like, kind of shakes his head and he's like, kind of like, how can anyone live here, you know? Like, it's almost like we were all a little bit skeptical that we were going to find anyone at this point, because it just felt sort of like uninhabitable, the place where we were. No sabemos exactamente dónde está la
5: no we keep
3: walking and like we're walking up this really steep hill everyone's pretty winded and Eriberto's, you know he's dressed kind of like you would expect a lawyer to be dressed you know he's wearing like a button- down shirt and nice pants and loafers I think and eventually a woman comes out of a like a tangle of branches Hello. Heriberto yells to her like Hello
5: I'm looking
3: for this person Pedro And then she nods And so ariberto walks up to the hut
5: Buenos días Buenos
3: días And inside of it is the man that he's looking for and Pedro is as bewildered as his wife was but allows Heriberto to come inside Um, they pull up a plastic chair and they start talking the conversation was equal parts, why is this man here? Who is Eriberto?
5: Eriberto trying to
3: explain himself. <laughs> And then also the man telling the story of what happened to him, of how he was separated from his son in 2017 and what his life has been like since then. You know, I mean, they've now been apart for almost exactly four years. And I think the man had expected never to see his son again. And then here's this lawyer. Heriberto, who suddenly emerges and inadvertently holds out this promise of reunification, which is absolutely, even though we in the United States know that the idea of reunification is now this this big news story, living in a remote part of Guatemala, this man had no idea that there was any reunification effort underway. He had no idea that there was any prospect that he might be able to see his son again in the United States. And so suddenly, Heriberto's there, and it's sort of like, you can just watch his whole life change in an instant.
4: What was it like for you being there for that meeting?
3: Yeah, I mean, it was really remarkable because you sort of watch in real time someone who's so sure of what their life is going to look like, right? I mean, this guy... After he was deported in 2017 without his son, you know, I think he was just an emotional wreck for a very long time. Um, I think he felt like he'd let his family down. He felt like he'd let his son down. He was really despondent and eventually settled into this sort of horrible reality that a lot of separated families have lived, which is, you know, every week or so he would drive into town where the cell phone signal was a little bit better. And he'd call his son who was living in Arkansas and he would just like try his best not to cry while his son was on the line. And I think he started just to tell himself the story that like, okay, well, this is what my life will look like. You know, my son is going to live in the United States for the rest of his life and I'm going to live in Guatemala. And so to be there when this person suddenly suddenly gets a sense that actually like all of those things that he thought deportation was permanent, that he was never going to see his son again to learn that actually those things might not be true, that actually there might be this path to reunification. I mean, yeah, it was incredible. It was also really interesting to watch Ariberto walk the line between being, being the person who is now, you know, putting this family back on the map in a way, but also like not making any concrete promises because Ariberto doesn't work for the US government, you know, because he's not the one who will say, when or if this family will be reunited so there's this sort of weird kind of subtlety in in what he does where it's like i'm trying to help you but i can't exactly explain how all i can tell you is that like you are now not on the list of unreachable parents of of missing parents you're on the list of found parents and that can only be a good thing for your the prospect that you'll be reunited with your son
4: Hmm. So now that he's found what are the next steps to get Pedro reunited with his family?
3: So what happened like the day after Ariberto found Pedro is Pedro was put on the list of found parents of located parents and soon a lawyer will will be contacting Pedro And we'll begin this process of reunification. And what that looks like is basically like a lawyer who will apply for what's called humanitarian parole on Pedro's behalf, which is basically a form of a visa that will allow Pedro to travel to the United States. That person, that lawyer, will also help Pedro get a passport. And the lawyer will also, now that Pedro has been found, will also be able to, at least theoretically, let Pedro travel with the rest of his family that remains in Guatemala to the United States. So in other words, when Pedro reunites with his son in Arkansas, he won't have to leave his wife and his two daughters who remain in Guatemala behind. So there are a lot of steps and a lot of promises that have been made to these families, and being found is just the very beginning of that process.
4: I mean, Heriberto seems pretty successful when it comes to finding missing parents, but I'm still quite surprised that this is what it looks like. You know, it's just one man driving through the mountains trying to find and reunite these families. Like, what does this say about the government's process to rectify the Trump-era policy?
3: I think a couple things. I think it's a window into what happened under the Trump administration, right? Like, we all know what family separation looked like at the border. We've all heard the stories of children being physically pried away from their parents after crossing the border as a result of the Trump administration's policy. We know much less about what happened next. We know much less about where the children ended up in the long term. And we know less about what happened to the parents who were deported alone. Mm. I think at some point, the government is going to have to ask... Is it going to be able to reunite all these parents and children? Or are there going to be cases that are just impossible? Because they can't locate the parents. Because some parents, no matter how hard you search, no matter how much time Heriberto spends on a motorcycle, cannot be found.
0: Kevin Seif is the Mexico City and Central America bureau chief for The Post. This story was produced by Alexis Dio and Sabi Robinson. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Emma Talgoff. We are working on a segment about Black women who feel anxious about going back to the office. From microaggressions to macroaggressions, tell us what you are considering as in-person work returns. To make sure your voice is heard, email postreports at washpost.com with a voice memo. And thanks. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.